1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 7 says this. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are, a variety, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, let's pray together and ask the Lord to teach us and lead us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness this morning. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to die on the cross in our place, to take the punishment that we deserved, and that for all who believe can be forgiven and welcomed into relationship with you. And Jesus, we're so grateful that you told your disciples, and we can cling to these words as well. You said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And you have come to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. You have sent him to dwell with us and be among us today. We thank you for that. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your word today, that we might see Jesus in his glory, that we might rightly understand your word. And Father, we ask that in your grace and in your mercy that you would change us today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians together as a church, and uh, just last week we started in chapter 12, and we're going to be spending really the next three months together going chapters 12 through 14. The reason why that's significant is chapters 12 through 14 in 1 Corinthians uh, is an intense focus on spiritual gifts. And so last week we really just kind of did an overview of chapters 12 through 14, really talked about um, what the New Testament has to say about spiritual gifts. Um, And so I'm not going to go over a lot of that today, but if you missed that last week, I want to encourage you. Uh, Last week is a great overview of really where we're going uh, over these next three months. We really just kind of unpacked what are spiritual gifts, what's the purpose of them, uh, what what do they look like in our lives today, Um, and just to kind of give a couple terms to recap some of that, because I'm going to use them, and we're going to continue to use them throughout this series, so it's just important that we're familiar with these terms. Uh, But we mentioned um, two kind of main camps in regards to when it comes to spiritual gifts. And mostly we're talking about kind of more miraculous spiritual gifts is kind of the categories that um, human beings have put on them. The Bible doesn't put categories on spiritual gifts, but um, that there's two kind of camps. There's one that is a uh, continuationist camp, which says that all of the gifts that we see in the New Testament are alive and active today in the life of the church, uh, that the Holy Spirit is still using those gifts to build up the body of Christ. That is the continuationist view. Um, the, the, the phrase that we're more familiar with is probably the term charismatic. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a term that we could, we could use to also describe what it means to be a continuationist. Quick side note, on one hand, every Christian is a charismatic because the word, the, it comes from the Greek word charismata, which is just simply grace gifts, okay? The, the spiritual gifts given to the church in the scriptures are called charismata. So on one sense, every Christian is a charismatic, whether whether you've said that some of them stopped or not. So I just want to, we just kind of want to get that out there for a second. So, uh, so there's a continuationist camp, or we could say charismatic, uh, or we would say or there's, a, there's another camp, the cessationist camp, which comes from the word to cease, okay? Which this camp says, well, some of those gifts have stopped for today, particularly the miraculous gifts. Those have ceased because they, they fulfilled a certain role and that therefore it's no longer needed. And so we kind of looked at that together as a church, um, and as a church, we're going to be teaching from a continuationist standpoint, saying that what we see from the scriptures is that these gifts were given to build up the body of Christ, and that need has not gone away. I'm not going to try to recap everything we talked about last week. It was like an hour long. So um, you can go uh, catch up on that. But I want to just remind us of some of these terms. Now, I know when I even say this and begin this, at the moment I used that word charismatic, most of us had a reaction. Okay, most of us had some kind of reaction either audibly or some of us had a reaction just internally, quietly, I know that that phrase, that word, sends triggers for a lot of us. For some of you, you hear that word and you think, that's the devil, I need to run. Where's the door? 
Some of you hear that word and you say, oh, that's home to me. That's what, that's what I grew up in. That's what I'm familiar with. That's what I long for. But no matter where you are at, I think that every single one of us in this room has some kind of baggage associated with that phrase, with that word charismatic. Now, I'm sure you've experienced having too much baggage before to be functional, right? We, I'm a notorious overpacker in my family. It is like I just pack so many things. I like to have options when I'm on vacation. I don't want to be limited. My, the terrifying scenario is I've worn everything and it's all dirty and I, I don't have anything else to wear. So I want to avoid that at all costs. Now, we went on a road trip as a family. We have a family of five, me and my wife and three kids. Uh, we went on a road trip this summer and you should have seen us rolling up to the Hyatt, all right? We're getting into the Hyatt. We have, we, not everything fits on one luggage cart. We have to get two luggage carts. We've got an ice chest. We've got a pack and play for my youngest. We've got like multiple suitcases. I mean, it's just nutty. We've got bags of food. And here I am like loaded up. I got stuff on my shoulders. I got one cart I'm pushing here. The other is with my foot. And I, like, it's just a scene. I am not functional. I'm not helpful. At some point, I eventually had to put down some of the luggage. I had to put down some of the baggage because I just simply wasn't helpful. I couldn't function with that much baggage. Some of you have experienced that before physically, maybe when you carry the groceries in from the car and you want to do it all in one trip, right? But we also all know all different kinds of baggage that we carry with us throughout our lives, so much so that sometimes our hands are so full we can't be functional anymore until we put down some of the baggage. I venture to guess that most of us in this room have some kind of charismatic baggage. What I mean by that is you have some kind of negative experience involving the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Or you've had some kind of negative experience with someone who says that they practice the gift, miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. For some of you, it's not just a negative experience. For some of you, it's even a traumatic experience. For some of you, it's just kind of an annoying experience. You've just kind of seen things from a distance and it just irks you and bothers you and you're just kind of like, it makes your skin crawl and you're just annoyed and you're totally turned off by the whole thing. All of us, I think, to a certain degree have some kind of charismatic baggage this morning. I don't care which camp you've grown up in or which camp you've come from. We probably have it to some degree. If you come from a more continuationist space, maybe you've, maybe you've experienced some really harmful words that are said to you. Some things like, well, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian is wrong, by the way. It's not biblical in any regard. But some of, some of you that maybe grown up in that space, you've been told that, and you've been shamed that because you haven't experienced that. You've been told that your faith is lesser. Some of you have been in spaces where you just simply don't understand anything, and it's made you feel afraid. People are doing weird things. They seem to be making weird sounds from their mouth, and, and I don't understand any of it, and it just freaked you out, and you felt afraid. For some of you, you just felt really less than because someone told you that the problem was is you don't have enough faith. Therefore, you're not seeing God work and move in your life because you need to have more faith. And if you would just simply believe more, God would pour out his spirit on you, which is also very unhelpful. Some of you have been yelled at or shamed. Some of you have been shaken or thrown down to the ground in order to be healed. Some of you have seen really miraculous things, but they came from people who showed no fruit of the Spirit. They, they seem to be exhibiting maybe, maybe some kind of gift of the Spirit, but maybe not, just kind of something strange or miraculous. But then you looked at their life and you said, I don't even know if they're a Christian. And, you, and you've been taught that it, it's not about the fruit of the Spirit. That doesn't matter. It's just the gifts of the Spirit, which is so wrong and unbiblical. It's far more important that we display the fruit of the Spirit. It's the groundwork for the gifts of the Spirit. Some of you maybe come from the other side, a more cessationist space, and your baggage is, well, you've heard stories. You've heard stories of, of some really unbiblical, unhelpful practices. Or maybe you've seen videos on YouTube. Or you've seen crazy people. Or you've been to a conference one time. Or you've just seen bad practices that seemed fake or unhelpful. 
Or maybe somebody has told you along the way that they've, maybe they've taught you that if you open yourself up to the gifts of the Spirit, you're really just opening yourself up to all the demonic realm and it's dangerous and you need to run away. I don't care what space you've come from. All of us are carrying with us some kind of charismatic baggage. And it's left some of us hurting. Some of us really confused. Some of us just absolutely downplaying the urgency of any of these gifts. But the question is, what are we going to do with our charismatic baggage? What are we going to do with it? The one thing we cannot do with it is we cannot allow our baggage to cloud our view of the Scriptures. We cannot allow our baggage to be the main filter through which we read the Bible. Okay, those that do that draw their theology from their experiences and not from the scriptures. It isn't to say that your experiences don't matter or shouldn't factor into how you think about things and view things, but we cannot allow our baggage to cloud or paint our view of the scriptures. We cannot allow our baggage to close our hands to God, to say, God, I have no room because I'm carrying all these baggage. I can't even be functional in my relationship with you. I can't hear from you. I can't receive anything from you because I'm holding all this baggage. Here's what I want to contend for us this morning is that God has empowered Christians for life and ministry. He has empowered you if you're a follower of Jesus today. He has empowered you, given you his power for life and ministry. Because of that, we need to lay down our baggage at his feet. Not just some like random dumpster at his feet, like right before him. Lay down our baggage at his feet and open our hands to him. The Corinthians had a lot of charismatic baggage too. Look at how this begins in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Okay, you only say that if you believe someone is uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, when you were not Christians, you were led astray to mute idols. Okay, every Every Christian in Corinth seemed to have a pagan background because this is not a Jewish church, okay? These are, this is a, gent, a predominantly Gentile church. And if you're Gentile, your background before becoming a Christian is pagan. There's no religious category of nothing, okay? That seems to be a very popular category today. In Corinth, that didn't exist. It was you worshiped all the gods or you were a Christian, like that, that was kind of the lay of the land. You were just open to everything or you were a Christian. And the Christians were called atheists because they only worshiped one God, right? How different from today. All of them mostly have a pagan background. And even in pagan backgrounds, he says, you have been led astray to mute idols. Right? Paul's talked about this throughout 1 Corinthians. Those mute idols, he actually says, are demons. You have been led astray to worship and participate with demons. Even in pagan worship, there were signs and wonders. This is super important for us to grasp. Even in pagan worship, there are signs and wonders and miracle and works of power and inspired utterances and strange languages and all these kinds of things are present in demonic worship. They have experience with this. They have some baggage. When they come to gather as the body of Christ, they have all of this in their background. Not only that, they've picked up some new baggage in their own church. In, the, in, in Corinth, they are abusing the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of tongues. They are competing with one another. They're creating a hierarchy of spiritual gifts to say, well, if you speak in tongues, you're more spiritual. For some of you, that sounds really familiar. Right? And some are saying, no, no, no. If we have wisdom, we are more spiritual. If you don't have these gifts, you are less spiritual. They're competing with one another and judging one another and, and, and trying to one-up each other. So not only do they have all this pagan baggage, now they've picked up this new baggage in their church because they're not practicing it rightly and they're using the gifts not to build each other up, but to build themselves up over and against one another. It's baggage. And it's human nature though, is it not? Is it not human nature to see something done badly 
and then recoil, get angry, reject it, and vow to never let it happen again. That's human nature. We see something done badly. We hate it. We get angry. We say, I will never, ever let that happen again. So what we tend to do is we prohibit it rather than regulate it. Because it's just easier to say that's not allowed anymore than to say, hey, let's do it rightly. But that's not what Paul does when he writes this letter. He writes to a church that is abusing the spiritual gifts. They are not practicing them biblically at all. And yet he never once writes to them to say, stop practicing the gifts. No, what does he do? He wants to fix their baggage and he wants to rightly instruct them on how to practice these things. That's exactly what he does. He teaches them how to use these gifts rightly. And so I think there is this invitation for us this morning to drop our baggage at Jesus' feet so we can hear him speak. And what I mean by dropping it at his feet is to say this, Jesus, these are my experiences and they hurt. Or these are my experiences and I don't like them. It scares me. These are my experiences and I'm wounded. And bring them to him to say they bother me, but I bring them to you who is my savior and my friend and I lay them down at your feet and I won't allow these things to block me from hearing your voice. I trust you enough to let you speak louder and more authoritatively than my experiences. Here's what I want to do and I want us to do this morning and really throughout this series. I want to follow Paul's instruction. Because Paul is writing inspired words of God. This is God's all-sufficient, authoritative scriptures. I want to follow Paul's instructions. I want to pursue spiritual gifts rightly. Rightly. Based off how the scriptures tell us to do it. I want to hold the gospel and the supremacy of Christ tightly and never let that go and say, we are about the good news of Jesus. We are about the supremacy of Christ in all things. He has given us everything that we need. He has saved us. He's rescued us from our sins. We have no hope apart from Christ. I want to cling to the supremacy of Christ in all things. And I want to cling to his word as sufficient and authoritative and Because we do that, I want to not prohibit the gifts, but practice them rightly. And Paul begins with a massively important point. A massively important point. He says in verse 3, I want you to understand, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Massively important point. Here's what I think he's saying. Displays of power are not conclusive evidences of the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders are not conclusive evidence that there's the Holy Spirit, he's here. Because he's writing to people that know they have a whole background with all of these weird things, signs and wonders, miraculous things seem to be happening. But it wasn't the Spirit of God. It was demonic activity. So he's writing to them to say, The marker is not signs and wonders. The marker is Christ. There are demonic signs and wonders that we're told about all throughout the scriptures. Jesus himself warns us. I didn't get this verse up, but in Matthew 24, he says there will be many Christs. There will become, there will, there will, and he's little C Christ. There will be many that come to do signs and wonders to try to lead astray the elect. We're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, have this one up on the screen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're warned about um, a coming one, an antichrist. Oh, I did 1 Thessalonians. That's not helpful. Um, But who will do signs and wonders? Sorry about that. 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, 8 through 10. You can look that up later. Uh, But who will do signs and wonders specifically to lead followers of Jesus astray, attempting to do that through miraculous powers? Or we see in 1 John 4, it tells us to test the spirits. Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into this world. Demons have power. That's that's clear throughout scriptures. There will be signs and wonders that are done through demonic powers to lead you astray. So the definitive marker cannot just be, well, we see miraculous things. Oh, they're, they're speaking in a weird language. I guess that's speaking in tongues. Holy Spirit's here. No, no. 
He says the marker here is right here. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously he's not just saying like, no one can just say the words because I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, and I just read the words, Jesus is a curse. It's not like my mouth like stopped working and I wasn't physically able to say it. No, what is he saying here? He's saying that someone, there's someone that you want to know if they're genuinely from the Lord, if the Spirit of God is genuinely working with in them, look at their life. Does their life embody this phrase, Jesus is Lord? The way that they live, do they embody the fruit of the Spirit? Do you look at their life and see they love Jesus, they follow him, they have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do I see those things in their life? Do they trust Jesus? Do they repent of their sins and follow him? Do they trust the authoritative scriptures? Do they follow it? Do they enjoy Jesus? Does their life embody Jesus as Lord? Because if it does not, it doesn't matter what kind of signs and wonders they do, you know it's not the Spirit of God. That's super helpful. So the definitive mark is, does it exalt the person and work of Christ? When we see signs and wonders, when we see what, what, what are claimed to be gifts of the Spirit, do they exalt the per- person and work of Jesus? Here's how one person said it. The ultimate criterion for the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. Whatever takes away from that, even if they be legitimate expressions of the Spirit, begins to move away from Christ to a more pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an end in itself. The point of the gifts is Christ. 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 And that you are built up to look more like Christ. That's the point of the gifts. So if that's not there, it's not the Spirit of God. That's how Paul begins. He says, let me address your baggage. If you have some negative experiences, maybe the Lord can help you sort, sort through some of those things. Maybe the Lord can help you remember some of these things to recognize. Was this about the exaltation of Jesus? Or was this about the glory of man? Was this about a, a, a popularity show? What, was this about getting more money? Was this about something other than the exaltation of Christ? The point of the gifts is Christ. It's also important to remember that you only counterfeit something if it's valuable. Right? No one's out here counterfeiting pennies. Right? That's silly. They're not valuable. You only counterfeit something if it's valuable. Why would the demonic realm or just simply human beings try to counterfeit the gifts of the Spirit? Because they're immensely valuable. Because we're talking about the power of God. That's what we're talking about. There's no, I mean, is there anything more valuable than the supernatural power of God Almighty? The Christian life is supernatural. By definition, the Christian life is supernatural. We should expect there to be counterfeits. Right? That's why the Bible talks about an antichrist. That's why, that's why demons try to deceive us. That's why Satan masquerades as an angel of light. You only counterfeit something if it's valuable. So there's something about the gifts that's immensely valuable to us. Or else our enemy wouldn't try to counterfeit it and lead us astray. We follow a God who is inherently supernatural. Right? Sometimes we forget that. He is literally outside of nature. He created everything with his word. With his word. I haven't created a single thing in my life with my word. He created everything with his word. He holds everything together by the word of his power. He is utterly supernatural and he has saved us through supernatural means. Yes, Jesus enters into nature and takes on human flesh, but we are told that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for God Almighty to take on human flesh is supernatural. None of us have ever done that before. This, the, the message of the gospel is supernatural. That Jesus Christ, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, would enter into human history, take on a human body, and live a life that we should have lived, and to die on the cross the death that we deserved. And somehow, the worth of his sacrifice on the cross applies for the forgiveness of countless people. 
That's the power of God. It is the locus of, of, our, of our affection, right? That, that, that God would use his power to save us from our sins. And the distinguishing mark of being a Christian is the power of God at work in you. The fact that you became a Christian is the power of God at work in you. Took your dead heart and made it alive. Power of God. But it doesn't just stop there. To say, I saved you and using miraculous means and with my power, but now that you're saved, it's just a really natural life for you. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God comes and dwells with us forever. So we are now filled with the power of God. What Romans, Romans 8 would talk about, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in me and alive in you. That's the power of God. The New Testament talks all about the power of God. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Paul is pleading. He's, he's eager for this. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul wants to know more of the power of the resurrection. Friends, that's, just not, that's not simply just a more intellectual understanding of the resurrection. He wants to experience and know the power of the resurrection. Or in Colossians chapter 1, he's praying for the Colossian church to be strengthened with what? With all power. He says, church, we need to be strengthened with God's power according to his gl glorious might. Or again, later in Colossians 1, for this I toil, struggling with what? With all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul's saying, my own faithfulness in the midst of suffering is not my own strength. It is literally his energy powerfully at work in me. Or Ephesians 3, praise this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, Christian, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's God's desire for you, that you would be strengthened with power in your inner being. Or again, later in, in uh, Ephesians 3, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to what? The power at work in us. Is that our experience? Do we feel like those things are true about us? What's the power? The power is the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit in us. And His power empowers us to do so many things. His power sustains us as Christians. His power grounds us in the truth of the gospel. His power cleanses our consciences from our sin and reminds us of our identity in Christ. His power keeps us faithful till the end. And his power helps us build each other up. What does his power look like in how we build each other up? So glad you asked. Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. So, let's receive from God's word. Paul's instructions as he sets the table for us to understand. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. He wants us to be informed about the gifts. He wants, them to view, he wants us to view them rightly. He wants us to understand that the Holy Spirit has been given to every Christian for power, for life and ministry. Every Christian. We can look at this together in verses four through seven where he describes these gifts. He lays a foundation for these gifts for us. And I want to just focus on five quick things about the gifts um, together. The first one is this. It's actually a, a precursor to 1 Corinthians. But spiritual gifts have been purchased by Christ. Spiritual gifts for the life of the Christian were purchased by Christ in his, in his death and in his resurrection. He literally bought these for us. The power of the cross and the resurrection is incredible. It has done so many things for us. It has given us access to the presence of God. It has disarmed demonic powers. It has put them to shame. They have nothing to hold against the Christian anymore. It cleanses us from sin so that we can be dwelling places for the Holy Spirit. It delivers us from sin. It delivers us from the penalty of sin. It delivers us from the power that sin had in our lives. 
And one day, fully and forever, it will have delivered us from the presence of sin to where we will be, have no sin anywhere ever. That's all purchased through the cross and resurrection of Christ. And it is available to anyone who believes. Anyone. No more inclusive offer in all the world that anyone who will come to me and believe, I will never cast you out, Jesus says. Jesus purchased salvation for sinners, but he also purchased the Holy Spirit for you, who is your seal. He is your guarantee. He is your deposit. He is given to you because of the person and work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. He purchases these things for us. We could not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us at all times unless Jesus did this. Our life could not be described as one of power if Jesus did not do this, but he has done it. And so for all who believe, he has purchased spiritual gifts for his church. And then he poured them out in Acts chapter 2. We call it Pentecost. He poured them out on the church at Pentecost. It's beautiful. Leading up to Pentecost, Jesus said to his disciples in in Luke chapter 9, he said said that he gave them power and authority to go heal the sick and cast out demons. He gave that to his disciples in Luke chapter 9. But then again in Luke chapter 24, he tells them he's leaving them. But he says to them, wait, don't do anything. Don't go out, don't preach the gospel, don't go try to heal people, don't go try to cast out demons, literally just wait. So Jesus thought it was important enough. Like the Holy Spirit was this important that he said, after I've died, purchased your salvation, resurrected, just wait for what? Wait for power from on high. Wait until you are clothed with power from on high. And then when we turn the pages to the book of Acts and Acts 1.8, we are told that we will be given power to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapter, two, Acts chapter 2, we see Jesus pour out what he's purchased for us on the church. It's important that we're going to be familiar with Acts chapter 2, um, so I'm going to read uh, a decent section here. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, doing exactly what he said, waiting. Jesus told us to wait. We are waiting. He said we're going to be clothed with power from on high. Don't know exactly what that means, but we're waiting. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the... Parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking them, said they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, now filled with the Holy Spirit, the same Peter who denied Jesus to save his own skin, now stands up, filled with the Holy Spirit, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. Be serious. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Listen to what he says. So here's what Peter's doing before I read this. Peter's looking at this moment, now filled with the Holy Spirit, and remembering Hold on. The prophet Joel said something. I I think what he said is happening right now. So this is Peter's Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of what's happening at Pentecost. And in the last days, the last days between when Jesus has resurrected and when Jesus comes again, in the last days it shall be, 
God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He keeps going and 3,000 people become Christians that day. The Spirit of God is poured out on the church It's purchased by Christ on the cross and it's poured out on the church in Acts chapter two. And God poured out his spirit with no intention of saying, can you pour some back, please? He poured it out on his people out of his love and his grace and his mercy for his church that people would come to know Christ and that his children would be built up. He poured it out. He purchased it. God doesn't rescind the gifts that he gives you. He purchased the Spirit for you and poured it out on you and doesn't say, give it back. He poured it out on his church. And now Paul says, in agreement with Acts chapter 2, in verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's exactly what we're told is happening here. The Spirit of God is falling on everyone. It's not just for a few select anointed people like it was in the Old Testament scriptures. Now it's anyone who calls on the name of Jesus. You are filled with the Spirit. doesn't matter what your title is, what your role is, what your background is. You are filled with the power of God. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That word to manifest means to show. We are given the Spirit of God to show that God is among us so that we would be aware of his presence and his power. Every spiritual gift is showing us God is powerful and God is here. Even the gifts to us that seem mundane, the gift of giving, the gift of hospitality, the gift of service, those are not mundane. Those are miraculous. Those are manifestations of the Holy Spirit among us where God is saying, I'm here and I'm here in power. I'm filling my people with gifts to build each other up. You know, we sometimes talk about the Holy Spirit having like a spotlight ministry where he he highlights Jesus and that's what he loves to do. He loves to show us Jesus and he absolutely does that. But we go too far. We go too far when we say that the Holy Spirit is entirely self-effacing. As if he has no glory and no honor as the third person of the Trinity. He does. No, in the gifts, the Spirit of God shows himself. He makes himself visible among us. We are supposed to know that he's here and that he's moving. And we're to follow as he leads us. And Paul says that these gifts that he poured out, there's a variety of them. There's a variety of them. In verses 4, 5, and 6, He actually leans on the the triune nature of God to say the diversity we see represented in Father, Son, Spirit is what we see represented in the gifts that God gives. Like he he mentions the Trinity right here. He goes, there's a variety of gifts, right? There's, There's a variety of grace gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service or ministries, but the same Lord, the Lord Jesus. There's a varieties of activities. That word literally means effective power. There's varieties of effective power, but it is the same God empowering them all. Now, if that's true, everything we just said, if that is true, it means the Christian life is not dull and boring and dry. It is full of life and power and joy and adventure. But I think if we're honest, there's many of us that think that that's too good to be true. Maybe it was true for the disciples but not for me. Maybe the disciples had the Holy Spirit in power in their lives and through their lives, but I think today maybe I just kind of get some kind of junior Holy Spirit. I kind of get some like junior power of God with me. And it maybe leads us to feeling just kind of less than, no, no real expectations of God to move in and through me. 
we just kind of feel belittled and small. We, we love the scriptures, love these stories, champion them. But in my life, I, I just, I'm lowly. I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. And that's not where God wants us to be. I remember uh, being at a, a baseball game about two years ago. And I'm just walking to go get like a hot dog or something. And, um, and I, I accidentally bump into this group of guys. There's like three of them. And they're all like six, five and taller. And I accidentally bump into them. I'm not six, five. I'm like five something. Uh, but uh, I bump into them and they turn around at me and they, they say words that I'm not going to repeat right now. They were quite explicit. But the gist of it essentially was that I'm little. And they were calling me little. Now this is, gro- we're grown men, like talking to each other. That's usually not like a, a common insult that you use. But I'm going to tell you, I didn't know those guys. I've never seen them again. Those words hurt I'm short. I know that. I'm not, I'm not the tallest, right? Their words hurt me. They belittle, they made me feel so small. And I think sometimes we maybe view ourselves that way. Not, not, in, not, in, the, not in the smallness and the weak sense of, like hum, of true humility, but in the sense of like humiliation, ashamed. I'm just small. I, I don't really expect God to do anything in my life. I, I just get like a little bit of him, but not as much as maybe the people in the Bible or, or maybe the pastors or, or maybe the, these people over here. We're not called to some kind of false bravado, though. But in weak humility, we are to confidently confess, I have the Spirit of God in me. I don't have some junior version of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me. I may be weak. I may be small. I may not have much to offer, but the Spirit of God lives in me, and He is powerful. He is all-powerful, and He wants to minister in and through me, and He gave me His power, and He gave me His gifting, and He even gave me His authority to proclaim the gospel and to build up His people. You have that, church. You need to believe that. He says it right here in verse 7. Here's the, the, the third thing about spiritual gifts here at the end, to every Christian, to each, to every single Christian. There is no special class of Christians. Every Christian has spiritual gifts. Not every Christian has the same spiritual gifts, but every Christian has gifts. There's not even a special class of gifts, as if some gifts are more spiritual than others. Now, we need the variety of gifts. In fact, he'll get into this later in chapter 12 when he starts talking about the body. So spiritual gifts are purchased by Christ, they're poured out at Pentecost, and they are for every single Christian. Every single Christian. And the fourth one is that it's for the common good. We talked about this a lot last week, I know, but he says it here. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There are so many ways in which we are built up by spiritual gifts. So many ways. It builds us up in our knowledge and understanding of who God is and what he's done. It builds up our, our, our confidence in him, our, our faith in what we expect to see him do in and among us. It, it builds up our joy in getting to be a child of God and getting to belong to the people of God. It builds up love that we have for one another when it's so hard to, to love you. When it's so hard to love you and I see the love of Christ for me, I, I'm empowered to love you. When it's so hard to have unity together with one another, man, these spiritual gifts can help build me up so that we can have unity together. It it empowers us for for evangelism, which is incredible to to build someone up from being dead to being alive in Christ. It builds us up for so many things. It's literally empowered love. That's what the spiritual gifts are. That's why it's so great that 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched in between 12 and 14. To talk about all these gifts, but to say the whole point of them is for loving each other. It's empowered love. We need help loving each other. I remember one year I had a a friend of mine just out of just kindness and generosity gave me a $100 bill to take my wife out on our anniversary. It, it, was, it was an anniversary where, in particular, I, we just didn't have a lot, and I didn't know how I was going like, to really treat my wife and love her the way that she deserved. And, and yet, here's my friend who gives me a $100 bill to help empower my love towards my wife. 
I now got to use something that I didn't earn, I didn't deserve, but was gifted to me, but I now get to use it to love my spouse. Empowered love. That's what the, that's what the gifts are. To each for the common good. And I'm going to pull here from verse 11 for this last one. Look at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. It is God who sovereignly gives these gifts. That's, I think, so important to point out because I know that some of our baggage is because we've been told, well, if I just had enough faith, I'd see these gifts. If I just tried to speak gibberish on my own in prayer, all of a sudden I'll have the gift of tongues. If I just believed more or was more mentally confident, God would just give me these gifts as if it's just up to us to muster them up. But it's not, it's not, it doesn't. It's, it's not up to us. It's up to him. He gives these gifts in his sovereignty as he wills. As he wills. It's not up to us, but it does involve us. Because he's told us to desire the spiritual gifts. To pray for them. To ask for them. To long for them. But ultimately, it's up to him to give them or not. Which is really good news. Because if you're here this morning and you desire a spiritual gift that you don't have, ask him. Ask him. Go to him. Talk to him. Ask him for these gifts. For yourself. So that you can build up the body. He's a good, good giver. He's a good father. If you desire one of these gifts, the good news is that he gives them as he wills. He gives good gifts wisely. It's okay for you to desire more spiritual gifts from God, okay? But not only is it okay, you're actually commanded to desire spiritual gifts from God. He's commanding you, eagerly desire these things. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. Don't quench the spirit. Eagerly desire these gifts, especially that you may prophesy. It is good for you to desire more of the spiritual gifts, it's good for you to desire for the gift of teaching, to be able to expound scripture and move people's hearts. It's good for you to desire for the gift of encouragement and exhortation. It's good for you to desire the gift of evangelism, that you may more effectively share the gospel with the lost. It is good for you to desire the gift of he gifts of healings, that you may be able to pray for people and, and see the Lord heal them in his mercy and in his sovereignty. It is good for you to desire for prophetic words to build up the body of Christ. Do you not long for these things? I long to see these things so that we may care for each other and show each other Christ. And Jesus told us, he tells us in Luke chapter 11, your father knows how to give good gifts. And because of that, how will he not give to you, give to those who ask? How will he not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You come to the Lord Jesus asking, you come to your heavenly father asking him for spiritual gifts. God does not close his ears and say, oh, what a horrible prayer. No, he's saying, yes, I've told you to desire these things. Come to me, ask, keep pursuing, keep asking, and trust me to be good. Some of us may be praying for a long time. We can trust his sovereignty. Sometimes we have this scarcity mentality with the Lord where we just think, well, probably won't give me those things. I, don't, I guess I don't, I don't feel like I really need them, but I shouldn't ask. Like, that's, that's not the God that we see in Scripture. Our God is abundant in grace. Abundant. He is rich in glory. He is full of power. He is unmatched in the amount of love and affection He has. He is not lacking for anything. And, and when He gives things, it's not as if He has less. He is abundant. He is rich. He is lavish. This is the God that he is. We'll really believe that when we see him in glory and we're with him in heaven. We realize when he talked about building a mansion with many, many rooms, he was for real serious. He is abundant. We can ask him for these things. He longs for sinners to know who he is. He longs for his children to be expectant of him and to plead with him and to call out to him and to run to him for everything. 
But some of us don't want to lay down our baggage. You feel that your baggage keeps you safe. Some of you think that your baggage, holding on to it, it's going to protect you from further harm, further damage, further unbiblical practices. But church, you don't need to be afraid of God. You don't need to be afraid of his word. You don't need to be afraid of his spirit. You don't need to be afraid of his voice or his power. Why don't we drop our baggage at his feet and open our hands to him? If you've been wounded this morning, would you let him minister to you? Would you come to him and drop those things at your feet and just be honest and say, Lord, I don't understand what I experienced, but it hurt me and it wounded me, but I don't want to carry that with me anymore. Would you let him minister to you? if you've just never allowed yourself to listen to the scriptures and and consider what they have to say about these things because you've heard the stories or you've seen the videos, would you come to him and say, Lord, I trust you enough to where I don't have to hold on to these things as my protection. I can hold on to you as my protection. You know, it was interesting seeing with with the storm that we had recently, how everyone was rushing to get a bunch of sandbags Right? Everyone was getting all these sandbags and we didn't really know what to do with them, but we just knew you're supposed to pile them up like somewhere, right? So we get all these, everybody's getting all these sandbags and you start making these, these barricades because we don't want any of the water to get in. And I wonder how many of us have been taking our baggage and piling them up like barricades to say, that stuff's wacky and it's weird and it's hurt me and I don't want any of it in here anymore. And we think that by piling up our baggage, We're protecting ourselves from unbiblical practices. And we might be. But maybe also some of us are keeping out the biblical practices too. Maybe some of us in the process have also said, Holy Spirit, I don't want you in here either. Some of us this morning need to knock down the baggage. We need to let it go. We need to move it out of the way. They say, Spirit of God, I trust you. here's my baggage. Would you help me understand it? Would you help me not cling to it as my safety and my comfort? Would you help me cling to you? Would you open my hands to your voice and your word and your leading? And maybe instead, as we go throughout these next 11 weeks now, maybe instead of just saying, sure, I'll be open but cautious, maybe instead we would say, I want to be eager and wise. Instead of I'm open and cautious and I'm just super passive and God, if you want to seep through the sandbags in some way, you're welcome to. But instead I might say, you know what? I want to be eager, like the scriptures tell me, and wise. Let's pray together.